Today is Saturday the 24th of May. My name is Audrey and I'm a recovered compulsive overeater from County Mead in Ireland and I will be your host for today's study. Co-hosts are Maria F and Sue L. If you have any questions during the meeting, please contact either the host or any of the co-hosts by private message in the chat function. Please note that Harlan, the speaker, will be recorded for the duration of the study. However, the questions and answers session which follows will not be recorded. We will post the link to the previous week's recording in the chat function. <coughs> we ask if you can please make sure to keep your microphone on mute at all times during today's study. And also please turn off your video if you're exercising, eating, or if you need to step away from your screen for any reason. We will also post the link to previous recordings and the seven tradition in the chat function. I will now turn you over to Harlan. Um, thanks, Harlan. Can we hear? Thank you. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. I want to thank everybody that does service for this behind the scenes. I think someone is unmuted because uh, I'm hearing some background noise. But anyhow, uh, I'm so glad to be here today. It is the 21st of May, 2022. And you know, I say this all the time, but I hope whether you're listening on podcast or you're listening uh, to me right now on Zoom, that it is absolutely as stunning where you are as it is in Arizona this morning. It is just gorgeous. It's going up to 99 degrees today and there mm. isn't a cloud in the sky. And I hope that you are having beautiful, beautiful days where you are as well. Just a little bit of a reminder, we're doing Big Book this morning and we're gonna be mm -hmm. doing Big Book next. Somebody is definitely unmuted. We're doing Big Book yeah. next Saturday, but we will not be doing it live on June the 4th because June the 4th, I will be in Los Angeles, California. And on the 3rd, 4th and 5th of June, uh, we are going to be doing our first live big book retreat in over two years. So that will be very, very exciting. And so I'm just giving you a reminder. And I hope at the end of this, I will remember to mention again for the people who are not here right now that on June the 4th, there will be no live big book meeting. I think Maria or somebody generally when we're not here will kind of be on the uh, Zoom call to remind people that we're not here. I, I'm, I'm not sure how that works, but I think they do that. I think it's Maria or somebody that does it. Anyhow, we are going to start one of the most important chapters in the big book. Not that there's unimportant chapters, not that there are chapters that are not vital to our survival, but we're going to be looking at the chapter called More About Alcoholism. And I don't know about anyone else, but I do know that with me, the older that I got, the worse my disease got, the worse my disease became. And I ate more and more and more food as time went on. I could not get the high from the food from one sandwich or one uh, pizza or one, you know, whatever that was that I could from when I was a kid. And what kept happening is as I got older and my metabolism slowed and through the aging process, the disease got worse and worse and worse and worse. And so this is what I experienced. And 
the ravages of this disease became more and more impactful on me as time went on. And I saw the world was slipping away from me. I saw that life was no longer worth living. I saw that life became more and more tedious rather than less and less tedious. And the dreams that my friends could dream of weddings and dating and kids and and careers and going and living normal lives were beyond me. I could not do those things. And I got everything in my life got impacted by this disease. Everything in my life was set afire by this disease. Now, we are told and taught that there are four books that were most influential in the development of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. And those four books are The Sermon on the Mount by Emmett Fox, the New Testament book of James, the varieties of religious experience by William James. And the fourth book is a book that was written in 1930. And it was written by a man whose name was, excuse me, Richard Peabody. And the name of the book is The Common Sense of Drinking. And in the book, The Common Sense of Drinking, we are given the information that is contained in this chapter. And in this chapter, we are going to expand on all of the things that Peabody taught us in the common sense of drinking. Now, the sad part about Richard Peabody's book is he came right up to the right answer, but he never really got the right answer. And the right answer was, we need a spiritual awakening as a result of the steps. He believed that a change of environment, a change of friends, maybe a change of location, a change of habits would give someone the necessary change so that they could recover from this disease. And we know that that is simply not true. True. And although he wrote a pivotal book on alcoholism in 1930, by 1936, Richard Peabody was dead from his own alcoholism. He was dead and he was one, it was one year after Bob met Bill. And so the help could have been right there and he died of his own alcoholism. But so impactful was the book, The Common Sense of Drinking that Bill Wilson's copy of this book is in the AA archives in New York City as we sit here this morning on May 21st, 2022. And in the common sense of drinking, we learn a few things that are very, very important for us to remember, for me to remember for sure. Number one, we learn that the disease is permanent. And every time you see in the big book or in fellowship or in anywhere where it says once an alcoholic, always an alcoholic, this thinking of once an alcoholic, always an alcoholic starts with Peabody in the common sense of drinking, that the disease is permanent. 
Now, Peabody illustrates in his writings in the common sense of drinking, and Bill Wilson illustrates in his story, Bill's story, and will illustrate again here beautifully that the disease is progressive. We fantasize, if you're anything like me, I fantasize that at some point in the future, when I'm 20, when I'm 30, when I'm 40, when I'm 50, that the disease will, re, will be in remission and I will be thin. And by then I will be either the quarterback of the Bears or I'll be the first baseman for the Cubs or something. I'll be in some position of uh, envy and the girls will all want to kiss me and everything else. I will be rich. I'll be famous and everybody will love me. And most of all, I'll be thin. And of course that never happened. Quite the opposite happened. The older that I got, the fatter that I got, the fatter that I got, the worse my life became. The worse my life became, the more I ate and I got even fatter. I've said this before, I have eaten railroad cars full of Chips Ahoy cookies to kill the pain and shame and guilt and remorse and the horror of eating railroad cars full of Chips Ahoy cookies. I ate to kill the pain of eating. I ate to kill the pain of not eating. I ate to kill the pain of living. I ate to kill the pain of not dying. I ate to kill the pain of being in a crowd. I ate to kill the pain of isolation. I ate because it was a day with a Y in it. And I ate because I ate. And I ate because I hated myself. And I hated myself because I ate. And so it became a vicious, horrible, nightmarish spiral of death. The disease is permanent. The disease is progressive. And as we're going to see, unchecked by a spiritual awakening as a result of the steps, the disease is fatal. And as I was a child, and I've related these stories in here many, many times, the one thing that people told me incessantly is why can't you be like the other kids? Why can't you eat like him? Why can't you eat like them? Why can't you be like them? Why can't you be like her? If you want to get a good job, you better not eat so much. If you want to get a girlfriend, you better not be so fat. If you want to get a good job. And what they didn't understand is that more than they could even imagine, more than they could comprehend, more than they could know, I wanted to acquiesce to their demands. I wanted to be what they wanted me to be. And I wanted to have the discipline that they claimed I had to stay out of the food. And I was told many times, young man, if you loved your mother, you wouldn't eat that way. Young man, if you loved your father, you wouldn't eat that way. Young man, you have no discipline. You have no character. You have no, no uh, uh, sense. You have no common sense. I have common sense. I have all these things. But no matter how hard I tried, I could not stay out of the food on my own. Once I ate the food, I was off to the races. And when I wasn't eating the food, my life was absolutely miserable. They said, don't eat so much, you'll feel better. Boy, they were right. 
When I didn't eat so much, I felt anger better. I felt fear better. I felt suicide, suicidal thoughts better. I felt all these feelings and all these emotions infinitely better. And as these feelings would burst to the surface inside of me, the urge to eat would be upon me in a way that presented itself as a step up from where I was feeling. And I couldn't resist the urge to eat because the effect that the food gave me, that sense of ease and comfort that the food gave me was so wonderful, so fantastic, and so elusive that I threw caution to the wind and hoped that maybe this time, if I eat an entire tin of Sara Lee brownies, maybe this time, if I eat a two pound bag of Doritos, maybe this time, if I eat 24 corn dogs, it won't make me fat and it won't destroy my life. And every time I ate 24 corn dogs, and every time I ate the two pounds of Doritos, and every time I ate an entire tin of Sara Lee brownies, my life got worse and worse and worse and worse. And I kept eating these things in greater volume than I had ever eaten them before. Let's go to page 30 and let's take a look at this chapter more about alcoholism. And one of the titles that they toyed with for this chapter was more truth about alcoholism. And the New York groups did not really like that title because they said that it made us sound like we were experts in the field of alcoholism when indeed we are not. And so the title was changed to more about alcoholism. And again, this is going to be the last chapter that we're going to study that is going to concern itself with step one. And because I've appeared on the Italian meeting and my friend Barbara, I know how to say step one now in Italian. It is passo prima. Passo prima is step one. Passo prima. I learned that by listening to my friend Barbara G say it, and that's how you say it. Passo prima. So let's go to page 30, more about alcoholism, and let's take a look at the very first little part of this chapter, and let's see how it applies to us. Most of us have been unwilling to admit we were real alcoholics. Now let's stop right there. Gosh, isn't it funny? I read one sentence and already we're stopping, but let's take a look. We are products, and I don't care whether you're in Europe, I don't care if you're in Asia, I don't care if certainly if you're in Canada or America, we are products of Western culture. And as products of Western culture, we are taught self-discipline, self-improvement. If there was such a thing as a bookstore, and I know that they have used bookstores, I'm not so sure they still have new bookstores. I, don't, I can't think, there is something not too far from my house, but if you go to a bookstore today, or if you go to one that's even online, what is the largest section in that bookstore? And that is gonna be the self-help section, isn't it? The self-help section is going to be bigger than any other section of the book. And most of you have virtual and real libraries of self-help 
tapes and self-help books and you've got all kinds of stuff on your phone and you've got it on your computer and some of you have all kinds of access to self-help and things like that and i'm not knocking that i'm not saying that that's a bad thing that's a good thing and that's fine and if that's helping you especially you should continue that but we are taught that we can do this ourselves. We are taught that our discipline, our character, our intelligence can rise above anything and everything in our path. And those are good things to teach children. But in terms of this, it is useless, futile, and of no avail whatsoever. Because where alcohol is concerned, where food is concerned, the will is amazingly weakened. And this is also a disease unlike other diseases. Now, if you have, God forbid, a cold or a strep throat, or you have pneumonia, or you have a sprained ankle, and you get up in the morning and you have a cold, you say, oh, and then you probably say a dirty word, a golf word. You say, oh, crap, I have a cold. You don't sit there and go, oh, there's nothing wrong. Oh, I don't have a cold. And you're blowing your nose every 15 minutes and you get somebody on the phone and they say, whoa, dude, you've got a cold. What's going on over there? And you know you've got a cold. You don't live in denial of it, right? If you fall down, God forbid, and you roll your ankle, when you get up, you'll say, uh-oh, I think I sprained my ankle, right? You don't sit there and deny it. But this is the only disease I know of that tells the sufferer there's nothing wrong isn't that weird about our disease? The disease whispers in your ear that you don't have this disease. And that's one of the reasons that we strive throughout our life to be just like them when we can't be just like them. We will never be just like them. We are not just like them. We are like each other. But where food is concerned, the will is amazingly weakened. Let's continue. No person likes to think he is bodily and mentally different from his fellows. Bodily is the allergy. Mentally is the twist of the mind. You know what no one said to me when I was four years old, five years old, six years old, nine years old? No one said to me, including doctors, including whoever, no one said to me, I bet you have an illness of the mind and an illness of the body that we can only treat through a spiritual awakening as the result of the steps. Everyone said to me, Harlan Grabowski, don't you eat seven hamburgers at a sitting. You eat a half a hamburger and you push yourself away from the table. That's what they said to me. And they probably said it to you too. I can only relate what they said to me though. No one said to me, no one, hey, I bet you have an illness of the mind and you have an illness of the body and rather than continue to flail your useless discipline in the face of this juggernaut, 
We're going to sit down and we're going to take another look at what's going on here. And we're going to work through this together. But I'm going to bring in Fred over here. And Fred is a member of Overeaters Anonymous. And Fred is going to talk to you about some things you can do so that you your desire to eat like this will not be present. No one said that to me. I was put on diet pills. And you've heard me talk about this before. When I was nine years old, I was put on heavy duty amphetamines. And when I was, when I was 10 years old, when Marilyn Monroe died in, in Hollywood, they started getting uh, some inkling that some of these pills may not be so safe. And so they switched me from one pill to another pill. And so with the same exact results, but when I was nine and 10 years old, I was on very heavy duty amphetamine. And I'm, I'm really, really telling you, um, I had a lot of resentment against my mother and I had a lot of resentments against the doctor for doing that. You don't put a nine-year-old kid on heavy duty amphetamines. You just don't do that. Let's continue. Therefore, it is not surprising that our drinking careers have been characterized by countless vain attempts to prove we could drink like other people. And I was a kid and I would watch a family. I could watch a father or a mother and there'd be two siblings and like it would be like McDonald's or it would be like whatever. And they would take a sandwich. It could be at a picnic. It could be, you know. It could be, uh, it's funny when I say the word picnic, this is how my mind goes. I can smell the peanut butter and jelly, or I can smell the hot dogs cooking when I say it. And I live alone. There's nobody cooking anything. That's how the brain works. I just said the word picnic and I can smell the hot dogs on the grill. That's so crazy, isn't it? But I felt I had to share that with you because that's how my brain works. I have a, I'm a compulsive overeater. I have a compulsive overeater brain. So I would see them split a hot dog or split a hamburger or split a sandwich of some kind or a piece of chicken that each kid would not be given their own piece of chicken. They'd be given a half a piece of chicken that they would split with a sibling and neither one would finish their half. And I wanted to be like that. I thought that if I was smarter, better, more disciplined, if I had more character, if I was a better person, if I had different parents, if we lived in a different city, if I could be from Mars or the moon or Saturn, maybe I could eat like that too. And everybody would think I was really nice and keen and wonderful if only I could eat like these other kids but I could not do it no matter how hard I tried because the food was doing something for me, not to me. It was doing plenty to me, but it was doing something for me that nothing else in this world did. It made everything okay for about nine or 10 seconds. And Dr. Silkworth calls that the effect as scared of people as I was, as scared of the world as I am or was, as scared of every day as I was, the food took that fear away beautifully and it made everything okay. 
almost like a psychotic delusional reaction. My brain was changing the reality around me to fit my needs. Everybody was going to do what I wanted them to do once I was loaded on the food. And so this food was so alluring to me that I could not resist it. And once I started eating it because of the allergy, I could no more stop than I could stop a freight train from going down the tracks. I could never be like those skinny kids that I saw eating a half a sandwich, not finishing their half, a half a piece of chicken, not finishing their half, a half of something. I saw kids that were splitting a piece of pizza. Neither one would finish their half. And I wondered out loud and I wondered inside and I wondered to God and silently in my prayers through tears, God, what do I have to do? What do I have to be? What can I do so I can be just like those kids? And I didn't know how to achieve it and I couldn't do it. The idea that somehow someday he will control and enjoy his drinking is the great obsession of every abnormal drinker. What is an obsession? An obsession is a thought which pushes aside all thought to the contrary all thought to the contrary. It pushes aside any other thought. And I want to be just like everyone else and control and enjoy my eating. When I controlled it, I could not enjoy it. When I enjoyed it, I could not control it. So when I enjoyed it, that meant I was eating what I wanted in whatever amount I wanted, triggered by the physical allergy. The more I ate, the more I wanted, the more I wanted, the more I ate, the more I ate, the more I wanted. And if I was controlling it, then that meant I was eating little or nothing. And I wasn't enjoying it because the urge to eat more and more and more and more was ever present in my heart, in my brain, and my soul. I was dying for more, but using whatever willpower I had. And then once I got away from you and you couldn't see me, maybe I was scared of your criticism. Maybe there was a girl there and I was nervous. Maybe there was some situation there that was scaring the crap out of me. And once I got away from you, then I would go and wantonly eat. It's a Saturday night. I would have my threesome. It would be me, little Debbie, and Sarah Lee. Me, little Debbie, and Sarah Lee. And we would have our threesome for a Saturday night. Once in a while, we might inv invite uh, Chef Boyardee, or we might invite J Ben and Jerry, but most of the time it was just the three of us. The persistence of this illusion is astonishing. Let's stop right there. The persistence of this illusion. What is an illusion? An illusion is something that appears real, but is not. Now, I am not the world-renowned authority on anything. But here is what I do know. 
in the mind of an addict, whether they're addicted to food or drugs or alcohol or relationships or sex or gambling or whatever it is they are, are, are uh, addicted to, there is a part of the brain where we live in a fantasy land. We fantasize, we live in fantasy land. And I had a friend of mine, unfortunately he's dead now, too bad. He's, he's been dead for a long time. Cancer took him out. He would go to a restaurant and he would say to a waitress, he was 30 years older than them or 20 years older than them, but he would say to a waitress, hey, I like your sweater. Your blue sweater really looks good. Then we'd go back to the same restaurant in a week and she'd be wearing the same sweater. So he took that as a signal that she wanted to date him. And I took it as a signal that maybe she's cold because it was January and it was Chicago. So she was probably freezing her butt off because when that door opens up, the, the wind from Chicago that we call the hawk is on the case. And when that door opened up, man, it was freezing in there. And that's why she was wearing the sweater. But he would be convinced that because she was wearing the same sweater, this was absolute proof positive that she wanted to go out with him. And of course, he was disappointed most of the time from these assumptions, but he never stopped having them. And I would laugh at him and think, what a fool. You know what? I had the same kind of fantasies. Maybe it wasn't about a waitress in a blue sweater. Maybe it was, but maybe it wasn't about a waitress in a blue sweater, but maybe it was about being able to eat Rice Krispie treats and eat one of them or half of one. Or maybe it was about one day I'm going to be thin. One day I'm going to be rich. One day I'm going to be whatever I'm going to be. And of course, that never happened. So this illusion is astonishing. An illusion is something like a delusion that appears real, but is not. And in all addicted brains, there is that part of our brain that lives in a fantasy world. And if you cracked open the brain of an addict, you know, if you know, when you open the trunk of your car, if right about here in your head, you could just open up the head, you'd see this big section of the brain and it would say fantasy land, fantasy land. And if you look at your own thoughts, if you are a compulsive overeater, there is that part of you that lives in fantasy land because that's what we do. We can't, we can't change reality. So we fantasize and we have these illusions and delusions. And this is part of it. Many pursue it to the gates of insanity or death. You know, there's 119 people here today. There's 119 people here today. And if there were people here because they needed to be here, there'd be 119,000 people here today, okay? There'd be 119,000 people here today. And so many of us will not recover. I talk to people almost every day of my life that call me and they seek me out and they say, I've got to ask you a question. And they don't want to ask me a question. What they want to do is they want to fight with me and they want to tell me why it's okay that they don't have to weigh and measure, 
why it's okay, they have, they're an exception to this rule or an exception to that rule. And I don't fight with people. If you're going to fight with me, you better marry me because I ain't fighting with you. Unless we're married, I'm not fighting with you. I'm not, that's why I'm paid the big bucks. Nope. I'm not paid the big bucks and I'm not fighting with anybody. No siree, Bob. You want to go eat candy? You go right ahead. I was on the family afterward to the family afterward a couple of weeks ago, and it was questions and answers. And I handled a lot of the questions and woman says, I want to eat chocolate. Can I eat chocolate? And I said, no. And she, she didn't like that answer. That was not the answer she was looking for. So she was very upset with me because I told her you can't eat chocolate. I'm here to say, I am not in charge of what you eat. You want to eat chocolate? Go eat chocolate. You want to eat whatever? Go eat whatever. I am not in charge. I am not the final authority. But it just really illustrates that many will pursue this to the gates of insanity or death. Insanity or death. And so many of us will die in this disease that it is very, very sad. This disease does not care who loves you. This disease does not care who needs you. This disease does not care how wonderful you are, how educated you are, how generous you are, how kind you are, how loving you are. Doesn't care how many children you have doesn't care what job you have, doesn't care if you have loving parents, this disease will take you out and it will set your life on fire and it will throw harsh, harmful biological weapons at you in the most unbelievable, unmerciful way so that you are begging God for death. So the death will be a welcome end to your life. You will never have lived in this, in this world, if you do not get recovery. And the bottom line is still this, this disease is a murderer. It is a, it is a terrorist. In Yiddish, it's merdelechazach. A merdelechazach means a murderous thing. This disease has no mercy. It doesn't care whether you're male or female, rich or poor, black or white, tall or short, gay or straight. It doesn't care whether you're an American or a Swede. It doesn't care whether you're a Swede or an Italian, an Italian or an Irishman. It doesn't care who you are, Jew, Gentile, atheist, Catholic, Protestant, Buddhist, Muslim, uh, Methodist, doesn't care whether you're Mormon, doesn't care whatever it is you are, this disease is looking to take you out. And not only is it going to take you out, it is going to burn your life to a crisp and it is going to vandalize your life and it is going to putrefy your life in ways that you wouldn't do to your worst enemy. I have seen the ugliest side of this disease. I had dime and penny size ulcers in my legs where the pus used to run out. I couldn't stand. I couldn't sit, I couldn't do anything that was consistent to life. When I was in my early, early 30s, I had been in OA and I relapsed, I left OA. I was in a place called Skokie Valley Hospital in Skokie, Illinois, right outside Chicago. And I weighed in at 513 pounds. And I had cellulitis and staph infection in my lower extremities. 
My fever was 104. They said, if I went up to 108, you're dead. They tried different antibiotics. Something worked. They were going to cut my leg off. They didn't. I was going to die. I didn't. But the bottom line was on my chart, my friends showed this to me. It said 513 pounds. And then it took a note. It, there was a note underneath there. The 513 is no mistake. This man is humongous. This man is humongous. It said, this is not a mistake. They wanted people down in the labs to know that this was not some sort of mistake. And when they brought me into the hospital, I had to wait to be admitted because the shop, they had to call people from the shop. Now I'm running a fever and I have cellulitis and staph infection and I'm waiting to be admitted. And they had to get guys from the shop because all hospital beds have wheels on them. And they had to secure the bed so that when I plopped down on it, it didn't break and it didn't roll. So they had to secure the wheels of the bed with wooden kind of stoppers to prevent the bed from moving. And they had to reinforce the bed on the bottom so I didn't break through because the beds were only made for people that go up to 350 pounds. And they were afraid that if I sat on the bed, it would break. And in breaking, it would hurt me and they didn't want to get sued. So I had to wait while the shop guys secured and reinforced the bed at Skokie Valley Hospital. That was my life. And I was in that hospital for 15 days. You know how sick you got to be to be in a hospital for 15 freaking days? You got to be plenty damn sick. And what did I do when I got out of the hospital? I went to a liquor store on Nile Center Road and, and Church, and I bought Slim Jims and Charleston Chews and Doritos, and I bought Chunky Bars and Black Cow or Milk Duds, and that's what I did as soon as I got out of that hospital. And the minute I got out of that death-defying situation, I was back into the food because I did not want to live. I saw no point. I saw no point to life. What is the point of living if I'm going to be alone my whole life? What's the point of living if I'm going to be dead broke my whole life? What's the point of living if I'm going to be in this much pain? And the only thing that took away the pain was food. The only thing that made the pain bearable was milk duds. And the milk duds were killing me. And it was the milk duds that were causing the pain, but the milk duds were my only salvation. Couldn't get sober, couldn't get drunk. And by that time in my life, I couldn't even get high off the food anymore. It had stopped working. Let's continue. This is the progression of my disease. This is the permanent progressive and fatal nature of the disease. First, the disease isolates you. It makes it so you're ashamed to go out. You won't go to the wedding. You won't go to the funeral. You won't go to the bar mitzvah. You won't go to the christening. You won't go out to a party. You will isolate. The disease isolates you. All good, vicious abusers isolate you. And in isolating you, they cut you off from the support that you need. 
The next thing they do after they isolate you is they make you sick. They start, they start attacking you. You start getting health issues, health problems. You cannot do this. You cannot go here. You cannot do there. And you're afraid to seek medical advice because the doctors are going to scream and holler at you because of how much you weigh. And they know the disease knows that. I didn't go to doctors unless I absolutely had to. Why? The first thing they were going to do is scream and holler at me about how fat I was. Why do I need that? I'd rather be dead. I'd rather be dead than go through the abuse. I had been abused enough in my life. Let's continue. We learned that we had to fully concede to our innermost selves that we were alcoholics. This is the first step in recovery. The first step in recovery is talked about in the doctor's opinion. Bill's story, there is a solution and more about alcoholism. No step has as many words or pages dedicated to it as step one. And it is the only step we have to work perfectly. The only step we have to work perfectly is step one. The delusion that we are like other people has to be smashed. We have a disease or presently maybe has to be smashed. We have a disease that tells us we do not have a disease. We have a disease that tells us if I only work out all the time, I'll be okay. Sin does not treat the illness. Abstinence does not treat the illness. Abstinence does not treat the illness. Thin doesn't treat the illness. So I know that in questions and answers, somebody's going to say, what do you mean abstinence doesn't treat the illness? We're going to find out next week about a man who was bone dry for 25 years. 25 years, he didn't have a drink of liquor. He starts drinking and within four years, he's dead. Exercise does not treat the disease. It treats one of the symptoms. One of the symptoms of this disease for those of us who are of that side of the coin is obesity and exercise and abstinence treats that, but it does not treat the disease. Only a spiritual awakening as the result of the steps treats this illness. I'm going to say that again. Only a spiritual awakening as the result of the steps will treat this illness. Abstinence doesn't treat the illness. I'm not telling. Now, don't call me up tonight and say, hey, you said we didn't have to be abstinent. I never said that. I never inferred it. I never said it. I never alluded to it. You have to be abstinent to do this program. You have to be abstinent or it doesn't work. Because once you're drunk, you're not going to have a spiritual awakening as the result of anything. So you have to be abstinent. But abstinence doesn't treat the illness. Only a spiritual awakening does. And you have to be abstinent to have a spiritual awakening. This is very, very important. And a lot of the offshoot programs, the programs, I won't name them, but they're offshoot programs from OA. They're very stuck in the first half of the first step. The food, the food, the food, the food, the food. But they don't move you into the spiritual awakening as the result of the steps. And that's where the recovery is. 
That's the most important thing we can take out of this today. So we have to smash this idea. We have to smash the idea, the delusion that we are like other people or presently maybe has to be smashed. <clears throat> we have an illness of the mind and an illness of the body. Now, abstinence will treat the allergy. Yes, abstinence will treat the allergy. Does it treat the mind? No, only the spiritual awakening will treat the mind. Let's continue. We don't have that much more time left. We alcoholics are men and women who have lost the ability to control our drinking. We know that no real alcoholic ever recovers control. I do not have control. I'm abstinent 23 years. I don't know anyone that can control it. If I could control this, I would have done it 60 two years ago when I was five years old. I would have gone on a diet like I did when I was five and I would not know any of you. I would not be here today. I would not know you. We're not gonna get control at some day, some point. We're not gonna go down to a weight that is gonna let us live normally like other people. The only way we can live like other people is to continue to work the steps. Our body weight is not gonna cure us. Our abstinence, our food plan is not gonna cure us. We have to have a spiritual awakening as the result of the steps. All of us felt at times that we were regaining control, but such intervals, usually brief, were inevitably followed by still less control, which led in time to pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization. This disease is a disease that makes me want to die a lot more than I want to live. This disease zaps me from confidence, it zaps me from anything that might resemble a normal life. It zaps me of dignity. It makes me hate myself. The recovery allows me to like myself. We had a discussion on this in the Scottsdale meetings the other night in our what we call the parking lot, which is our after the meeting meeting. That one of the beautiful things about this program is in working it, I don't have to hate what I see in the mirror. I don't have to hate what I see in the reflection of a storefront. I don't have to hate the idea of being who I am and what I am. I can like myself. And in order to do that, I have to do self-esteemable actions. I have to help other people. I have to treat myself like a human being that I love and respect. And I have to say no when I mean no and yes when I mean yes. And I speak my truth. I do not hide my truth anymore. I am emancipated from much of my codependency because of these 12 steps in Overeaters Anonymous. I say yes when I mean yes. I say no when I mean no. And this makes me respect myself. This makes me like myself. This allows me the dignity to live my life as a human being who does not engage in self-loathing. And self-loathing for me is a major part of this disease. 
And that self-loathing made me feel like, what's the use anyhow? I might as well eat Sarah Lee brownies. I might as well eat Little Debbie cakes. I might as well eat Chunky Bars because I'm just going to die anyway. So what's the point? What's the point? Well, there's a lot of point. There's a lot of point. And the pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization, I can't even describe for you the nightmare of what my life is like in this disease. I am still paying the price for the Kentucky Fried Chicken that I ate in 1966. I am still paying the price for the uh, uh, Chips Ahoy cookies and the Kit Kat bars that I ate in 1967. I am still paying the price. I have bubby arms. I have thunder thighs. I get my thunder thighs from my mom. Thanks, mom. I get my thunder thighs from my mom. I wish that I could be slim and trim like the other guys. As hard as I've worked, as much weight as I've lost, I will never look, especially to a female, I will never look like some of my friends. I see it when we go out. We don't go out all that much. I mean, we all, we're all older now. We're all in our mid to upper 60s. And they have adult children and grandchildren and wives and things like that. But when we do go out, I see the gaze of the, like the females or the waitress that comes to the table. They look right at my friends. They do not look at me. Why? I got the bubby arms. I got the thunder thighs. I got, they, it's just not, it's not what I want to look like. And I feel like I deserve to look like them, but I can't, not without a surgeon, not without a surgeon, I can't. And even with a surgeon, it's not the same. It's just not the same. So this disease isn't just about what I look like. It's about the self-loathing. It's about the give up attitude that I carried with me throughout my life. If anything got rough, I quit. And I would not only quit, I would take my ball and go home. And I would try to recruit you to feel sorry for me too. I didn't have stick to itiveness. I didn't have perseverance. I didn't have character. I didn't have credibility. Now I do. I'm on time. When people expect me at 10 o'clock, I'm here at 10 minutes, a quarter to 10. I was always late for everything. If something was called for six o'clock, I would just be getting in the shower at six o'clock. I was late for everything. I'm going there anyway. I might as well be on freaking time. Why am I late? Well, I was tantruming. I was scared. I didn't know how people were going to react to me. Yes, I did. Actually, that's not true. I knew that they'd be commenting on my food. I knew that they'd be commenting on my weight. And I wasn't living the life of a free person. I wasn't living life to the fullest. I have a friend of mine. And she says, YOLO, YOLO means Y-O-L-O, you only live once, YOLO, you only live once. And that's such a refreshing attitude for me to take is YOLO, you only live once. I just wanted to get it over with. I knew I wasn't cut out for this world. But now I try to embrace YOLO, you only live once. And I've said this here before, and I'll say this this morning. When I was a little boy, most, not all, but most of the friends my father had, and he was not a Holocaust survivor. He was a survivor of the murder of Jews that occurred 
40 years before, or 30 years before the Nazis came to power. My dad was not in a concentration camp. He, his family was killed in Russia, in what you'd call today Belarus. Not far from where the war is going on, up the Dnieper River is Belarus. And that's where their, that family was murdered. And there's a place there called Bialystok. And if you ever watch Mel Brooks movies, he'll always talk about Max Bialystok was one of his characters. The Bialys that you eat come from there. That Bialystok is where Mel Brooks was from and many other Jews there were killed too. But not to get into a discussion of that history of, of, of Russia and all that. Where was I going with this? Most of the people that he introduced me to were Holocaust survivors. And they would grab my face like this and they would say, live until you die. Live until you die, they would say to me. And I believed when I was eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, that if you lived to the fullest, that meant you were eating pizza every day. You were eating ice cream every day. Because to me, that's living. Why would you not think, hey, tonight we ride, tonight we go. I'm having chunky bars for an appetizer, chips ahoy for dinner ice cream for dessert, and maybe I'll eat a side of beef later on to get some protein. But the bottom, or a Cadbury egg, that has protein in it, right? They're eggs, right? But the bottom line is, is that that to me was living. So it took many, many years after my father was dead and all them were dead to realize when they were saying to me, live until you die, they were not saying to me, eat Cadbury eggs, eat chocolate, eat ice cream. They were not saying that. They were saying exactly the opposite. Go live your life. And to me today, one of the biggest promises of recovery is not that you lose weight. That's fantastic. That is fantastic. That's great. I can get out of a chair. I can get in and out of a car, which I couldn't do. I can walk. I'm going to go for lunch as soon as this is over. I'm going to go in Scottsdale for lunch at a place called Pita Jungle. And there's hundreds of people going to be around. There's a big movie theater there. They have like 15 different movies going on. And there's lots of restaurants. And it's a real busy kind of place. Uh, all kinds of restaurants there, and there's a big grocery store there, etc. Hopefully, nobody is going to laugh at me because I'm the fattest person they've ever seen in their life. Children used to laugh at me as I walked down the street. I would walk down the street and people would bust out laughing and try not to look at me. And I had to pretend that that didn't bother me. Hundreds of times people would come up to me that I did not know and grab or slap my stomach. And I had to pretend that that didn't bother me or they would grab or slap my ass. And I had to believe that that, I had to pretend that that didn't bother me. I was a spectacle. I was an object of ridicule. I don't wanna live like that anymore. And I don't think that's why my mother and father put me on this earth with God's help. I don't think that's why they made the sacrifices that they made to raise me so I could be an object of ridicule. And I have to respect myself enough to know that I am a person of God and I am a human being and I am no less or no more than the trees and the stars and the sun and the moon.
and that I have just as much a right to be here as anybody. There's a prayer that I pray every morning. It's called Desiderata. And it says, you are a child of God, no less than the stars and the moon and the sun. And you have a right to be here. Because the reason I pray that prayer, Desiderata, is because I need to hear that. Now, do you have to pray that prayer? No. Am I telling you to pray that prayer? No. I'm telling you what I do. <sighs> so that's a prayer that I pray because I need to hear the words, because I have had mounting evidence during my life that I was less than scum, that because I was fat, I was emasculated, I was a freak, and that I did not deserve to be on this earth. I lied when the truth was better. I wrote bad checks to anybody dumb enough to take one. I lied when the truth would have served me better. I sat on broken furniture. I've broken my friend's waterbed. I've shattered chairs. I've got stuck in cars. I've broken car interiors. I broke seats in cars. I smashed the, the springs in a car seat because of the weight that I carried. I don't have to live like that today. It's not just the weight. It's the freedom that I have to walk the streets a free man. I don't owe anybody a quarter. I'm even with the house. I'm even with the house. And I don't lie. And if I tell somebody I'm going to be someplace, you can put it in the freaking bank that I'll be there. Let's finish the paragraph. We are convinced to a man that alcoholics of our type are in the grip of a progressive illness. The food works less, the devastation increases. The food works less, the devastation increases. The major factor there is the aging process. As you get away from 17, 18, 19, 20 years old, your factory your, your digestive factory begins to slow. It begins to be less and less efficient. And as you age, your ability to burn this food decreases with every passing day. Over any considerable period, we get worse, never better. Worse, never better. So to encapsulate what we've done this week, we have introduced ourselves to the beginning volley of thoughts that are chapter three, more about alcoholism. And we have seen what step one is. Step one is the concession to our innermost selves that we are alcoholics. What is an alcoholic? Besides Carl, who's on the camera right now, we've got Carl, and we also had Elsa before. But except for Carl, I'm going to assume that everybody here is an, uh, a compulsive overeater. If you are a compulsive overeater, the first step in recovery is that admission to yourself that you are a compulsive overeater. What does that mean? Allergy of the body, twist of the mind. And what else does that mean? You have an illness which only a spiritual awakening will conquer. You must be abstinent, yes, but abstinence alone 
will not help you. Losing weight will not treat the disease. If it did, diets would work and they don't. Now, before I throw it back to whomever, I assume Maria or Sue, I don't know. Before I throw it back, I wanna remind you of some things. First of all, next week is a yes, and the week after is a no. Next week, we are meeting and we will be here. And then the next week after that, I am going to Los Angeles to do a live big book study. And that's going to take the third, fourth, and fifth of June. So I will be in Los Angeles, California on those dates. And I think